Welcome to The Modern White Man, the podcast where myself, Ken Lawrence, and me, Paul Johnson, discuss how to be a modern white man who is anti-racist, anti-sexist, and understands his role in creating an equitable society. We unpack our identity as white men by having honest, open, and sometimes difficult and uncomfortable conversations about being a white man, where we come from, our place in today's society, and roles to play moving forward as allies, leaders, and individuals who care about creating an equitable society for all. All right, Paul, here we are in our third installment of working through our identity process. We are still in that critical first step of understanding the history that led to our current racial ecosystem in the United States. Yeah, so last episode, we discussed some of the main events that led to the Civil War, highlighting the divisiveness that was so ingrained in society that led to war. The driver of that divisiveness revolved around slavery and with that, the underlying racial hierarchy in society. You know, so one of the things that I guess my main takeaway from last episode was around how, you know, white people clearly created this issue. They created the concept of race. As you talked about, they created a slave trade and justified it by creating a racial hierarchy in where it sees people of color specifically in this situation, Africans, African-Americans as inferior. But yet it, it was it was the white people again who had to be the ones who saved African-Americans and be like, well, we created this, but now we got to clean up this mess, right? Which was what the Civil War was about. But it makes me, it made me reflect on a term that, that I think is important to bring up, not only for this context, but I think also for us, for myself moving forward to think about especially as white men, to be careful as, as we get into this work. I'm sure you've heard of it, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners heard of the, the term white saviorism. And I wanted to read just a quick excerpt from a book called Me and White Supremacy by Leila Saad, where she talks about white saviorism. And she says, white saviorism puts BIPOC, which of course means black indigenous people of color, in the patronizing position of helpless children who need people with white privilege to save them. It implies that without white intervention, instruction, and guidance, BIPOC will be left helpless. That without whiteness, BIPOC, who are seen as inferior to people with white privilege in the white imagination, will not survive. So I'm, I'm excited to, to have centered as we talk about reconstruction, because reconstruction, as we will get into, is about how white people were in charge of kind of saving black people, right? Like they went into this savior position, even though clearly it's not a savior because they, they created something terrible and they're cleaning that up. You don't get a gold star for creating an oppressive institution and then being like, well, look at us though, we're, we're making it better. Embedded in that is that looking at black people as inferior, as in like they're not capable or have the ability to or the intelligence to solve their own problems or to take care of themselves, right? It's, it's infantile infantilizing infantilizing um you know we're not much for words in the show so no. we'll just yeah go with you go can with make up whatever pronunciation yeah. you want or into look that. at look at people they look at black people as children right as helpless children it's patronizing so i think it's important for for us and we're going to talk about this in future episodes too of what is our place as a white male mm-hmm. in social justice work and so how do we avoid that white savior complex but still be a part of the work and part of dismantling the things that we created. And you know, it's it's interesting that you bring that up as a takeaway because one of the things that I 
kind of was critical of myself in looking back on it is that I it, we are giving an overview and I didn't give black people credit. In the Civil War, black people had a really important impact on that. When there was the opportunity to fight for freedom, black people were escaping slavery in the South by a huge number, coming up, joining the, the ranks and fighting the war. And people in the North who were freed blacks were fighting the war. And Ulysses S. Grant, who was the general of the Union Army, was like telling Lincoln, you know, if we want to win this war, we need the helps of the blacks to fight it, both because of manpower, but also like the visual and the, the spiritual impact of seeing that and, and having like a turn of the tide. And as we're going to talk about in Reconstruction too, black people are incredibly brave and have to fight through so much to try to fight for their own rights. So I think that that's a good piece to point out and something that I've thought about since then too, is like we have to give them credit because they tried and we just had set up this system that really stopped them from being able to to do all that they could or wanted to. Right. And I, I mean, I think there are some significant disadvantages that black people had at the time. Like they were suppressed, like from education, from even speaking English. Like there was there was a intentional effort from white people to uh, keep them from all the sort of the basic needs like education, right? And voting and owning land and, and earning money. So not to say that they that makes them inferior, clearly, because that's that's white supremacy makes us believe it's, it's a race thing, right? But clearly, they, there was some disadvantages from a social standpoint, from an economic standpoint, that made it difficult for them to rise up. But yet they did, mm-hmm. right? And and I think that takes more courage than people with immense resources rising up. And I think you know, again, we'll probably talk about it more today. But we can we could look at today and see you know almost the same picture. It's it's this David versus Goliath. But I think with the rise of technology and social media, it makes people without maybe the resources that they may have needed back then to mobilize and organize and gain power. And I think the white majority, white supremacy in general is feeling that, that feeling like it's a little bit easier more, or, or at least it's more accessible for, for folks of color to access power because you can still gain power without being a part of institutions by organizing and mobilizing, which is what we're seeing a lot of. And I think that's what's causing a lot of fear. Mm-hmm. Everything that you're saying is a perfect segue into Reconstruction and into this next period that we're talking about. I framed it up last episode of how monumentally impactful reconstruction was so we have like two more episodes here of completing the history portion of our racial identity process Mm. so let's dive into that so we left off last episode at the point where the civil war ends lincoln is assassinated andrew johnson took over as president who i gave you a preview of my sentiments towards and our country facing its biggest challenge probably ever reconstructing the country after this horrific war So this period is called Reconstruction. So the list of things to get done was extensive. How to allow seceded states back into the country, what to do with Confederate leaders, how to rebuild cities, and most importantly of all, how to integrate the nearly 4 million newly freed slaves. And what freed slaves wanted with their freedom was simple human rights. The right to marry, make a home, an education, earn a living, And the biggest cornerstone to all of that was the right to own land. All right, Paul, something that I found during my research for these next two episodes was really interesting. You know, when we talk about race relations during this time, we talk so much about the South 
And, you know, in past episodes, we both were saying like, hey, let's not pretend like the North was this holy land of equality by any means. Well, what I found is that until 1900, over 90% of the black population in the United States lived in the South. So it's an important piece that I didn't really recognize before doing more research on these two episodes. So Southern racial policy was the national racial policy. And then we'll talk about when and why that population shift spread. But the beginning of Reconstruction was a period of hope for freed slaves. It started off really promising. There were freedmen's bureaus set up across the South that had federal troops present to ensure the transition went smoothly. The biggest thing that the Freedmen's Bureaus started to do was distribute land. So the Federal Army had tons of land, much of which was confiscated through the war from old plantation owners. So freed slaves are starting to get that essential piece to independence, land. They're getting 40 acres of tillable land. And the Freedmen's Bureau also started schools for freed black children. They were providing protection. There was a lot of hope. All right, Paul, the moment that I've been waiting for, let's get into Andrew Johnson. So he's the president at this time. I think by the end of this, you're going to feel the same about Andrew Johnson. No relation, by the way. (laughs) No. Actually, I have no idea. I could be related to him. That's true. But there's so many Johnsons in this world that it might, hopefully is unlikely, but. We're going to say no. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going (laughs) to just distance myself from him relationally. So Johnson was from Tennessee, which was a Southern state during the war, but he was against secession. So Johnson grew up a poor Southerner who loathed the Southern elite, primarily because he wasn't accepted by them. And Johnson was, as Frederick Douglass noted the first time that he met him, which was at Lincoln's second inaugural when Johnson was super drunk, by the way, that he was no friend to the blacks. And boy, did he show it. So during this critical time, Congress is out of session, and he tried to tackle this whole Reconstruction thing on his own in six months. So the first thing he did was deal with the Confederate leaders and Southern elite who seceded during the war. And because of his own personal vendetta against them, he made them come to him personally at the White House for a pardon. And once he essentially made them grovel to him, he gave them a presidential pardon and they could go back and essentially do whatever they wanted, have the life that they had before the war. And the thing is, Johnson wanted the South to go back to the way it was before the war as well. So once Johnson gave out these presidential pardons, he told the Freedmen's Bureau to give back the land to those Southern elite that had been distributed to freed slaves. And at this point, over 40,000 freedmen had already been settled in this new land. So not only is Johnson giving back the land to these old Southern plantation owners, he then personally set up and allowed Southern governments to set up oppressive laws known as black codes. These black codes recognize slavery was gone, but makes as little change to slavery as possible. So Paul, you started mentioning these at the end of last episode, how slavery continued in a different form. This is really where we're getting into this. So there were things like vagrancy laws, Every adult black person was required to sign a labor contract for a year with a white employer. If they didn't, they would be considered a vagrant and fined. If they couldn't pay the fine, which they couldn't because they didn't have the contract, they would be auctioned off to someone who could pay the fine. Then they had to work off the fine. So they're working for free. In South Carolina, a law prohibited blacks from holding any occupation other than farmer or servant unless they paid an annual tax of $10 to $100, which was unpayable at the time. 
Blacks who broke labor contracts were subject to arrest and forced labor. Because of the purposely limited job opportunities, it was white people, mostly ex-Confederates, who ran the police and justice departments. There were apprenticeship laws where white people could say, hey, those black parents aren't doing a good job raising their children. And that's all it took for them to then take in and train them in farming and housework. Yeah, training them as apprentices in those. So, so I got to Yeah, I got to jump in here. So just I just want to make sure I'm hearing this right. So it was like sort of this like you're free and you said there's, there's a lot of hope, right? And then sort of this like just kidding. You're still free, but we're going to put all these laws in place that kind of rein things back in, right? Mhm. Essentially, they tried to keep the exact same society as when slavery existed with free slave labor. Yeah, I mean I've already seen an example of white saviorism, the apprenticeship law. White people could say black parents weren't doing a good job raising their children. White supremacy literally means better than, right? Mm-hmm. We are, white people are, are superior, black people are inferior, and white people could actually, that seems absurd, yeah. right? Um, but, but I'm sure here's the thing though, and this is where we get into like well-intentioned white people. Because I, I'm sure if you talk to those white parents back in the day who took in black children like no we're, we're we're this is a good thing right these poor black children look at them living in squalor look at the way they dress look at the way they look like they look like savages right which is the way it was black people were described before so they were have they were embodying this white saviorism this well-intentioned white person approach of we're doing a good thing so so that's you know i'm hearing that for the first time which is what i love about this yeah. Um, and probably some listeners, too, are hearing, like, what? Apprenticeship law? Like, that was a thing? Yeah. So hope starts to pick back up. So they have these black codes coming in, and black people are really on a roller coaster ride here because they're feeling free. They started having land. It's being taken away. And now there's all these laws coming in. But then we're going back up on the roller coaster because when Congress comes back into session eventually, President Johnson, you know, he said all of these ex-Confederates and ex-Confederate states are good to go. They, they came to me and I gave them a presidential pardon. So just like that, you have ex-Confederate generals, Confederate congressmen, even the ex-vice president of the Confederacy who's currently serving in Congress. So this is where Thaddeus Stevens takes over, who is a congressman and he was a staunch abolitionist. And so what he did is he simply didn't call on those southern states into session because he had the majority and he said, hey, Johnson, you did this while we're gone. I'm not recognizing them. So Congress takes advantage of not calling in these southern states to pass the 14th Amendment, which gives anyone born in the United States citizenship, including slaves, And they also eventually passed the 15th Amendment, which granted the right to vote regardless of race, as well as hold office. So in the elections of 1868, black people went to the polls in droves. This was the thing that they were most excited about. They were finally to have a voice. Half a million black men voted. The number of black men voting by the end of the Civil War went from 1% to 80%. Not only did they vote Ulysses S. Grant as a president, Dozens of black men had been elected to office, many of whom were slaves just a few years ago. I mean, even in South Carolina, they elected a black majority to the House of Representatives. And real quick, so just just to be clear, I mean, it comes up in, in, in what you just said, but when you said that they passed the 15th Amendment, giving the right to vote regardless of race, that's just men. Exactly. Right? Yep. Right. So yep. just, just to be clear, and that, so even a half million men 
that's not including all the women that could have voted, and that, that's a huge number of people. But again, in the context of our discussions, white men, right, like the right to vote was given to men before women. I mean, we all know that yep. history, but it's... After our racial identity process that we're going through, we're going to have an episode on gender and masculinity as well, because you're exactly right. The 15th Amendment gave the right to black men to vote. White women still can't vote at this point, even with the Mm. racial hierarchy. So yes, that's a good point to call out. We're going to talk about that. I'm curious if tensions that might have created, like white women seeing black people and black men, but just like, even like, whoa, you're going to give black people the right to vote before me? Yeah, right. And if that, like how that could have caused tensions. And it does show, you know, that there's, of course, a a supremacy that's not just about race, but also about gender too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, so again, hope starts picking up. Resources start being available to people of color, public education, businesses. There are security measures being put in place because black men are serving in state and national positions. And all of these steps, by the way, Johnson tries to veto. So, Paul, that's Andrew Johnson in a nutshell. We didn't go too deep into him, but he's the president of the United States in this critical time, and he has put in all of these things to try to suppress the black vote. And again, last episode, I was like, what if? My history's biggest number one, what if? If Abraham Lincoln was here and you know we had a president fighting for the rights of black people instead of somebody else. He's the worst ever. <laughs> again, right. no relation. <laughs> no I'm relation. keep saying that. So we're on this roller coaster ride, and then something incredibly important picks up. Violence. Paul, it's almost impossible to properly convey how violent and gruesome this time period is. I want to get back to that divisiveness that we have highlighted in the last couple of episodes. Let's remember the South believed in this racial hierarchy with whites at the top. They couldn't imagine their livelihoods without slavery. They fought a war to keep it. They lost and now are dealing with not only the embarrassment of losing a war, but they have the victors telling them that slavery is over and slaves are now equal citizens, can vote, can hold office. The Southern whites did not accept it and they fought against it with unimaginable violence and fear mongering. In many cases, these whites would be strategic for who they targeted for their attacks. They would target black people who started to become successful, who started acquiring a decent amount of land, who sent their children to school, who started a business, who had the audacity to go to a polling place to vote, who were representatives. I mean, they would attack and in most cases, murder these black people. Wherever black people began to create a thriving community, they would burn it to the ground. Black churches, black schools, black businesses, armed mobs would take to the street and attack black communities. It became a culture of casual violence, which is violence without consequences. White people ran the police stations, and still the government and Supreme Court were debating equal protection under the law. So the worst of this casual violence was open lynchings. And lynchings are the extrajudicial murder of an untried victim, usually by a mob, and often in our country, in this time, by torture and hanging. So there's a result that they did it in the open. It was an intimidation tactic. The message was, don't be too successful. Don't vote. Don't try to be elected, or if you will, you will be targeted. And guess what? No consequences to us for doing it. The Ku Klux Klan forms right after the Civil War in Tennessee, and they become an organized effort to suppress as many black people as possible. And in the end, it was to uphold white supremacy. 
So this violence made the fight for black people's equality an unbelievable struggle. Black people during this time are incredibly brave. I mean, to even go to the polls was risking their lives, but they wanted citizenship so bad. They wanted representation. They wanted that right. And they were incredibly brave to just walk down the street and, and try to take advantage of these. So at this point, President Ulysses S. Grant is in, Johnson's out, and he passes the KKK Act which puts weapons in the hands of the federal government to protect citizens' rights. And again, we're on this roller coaster ride. So now we're going back up. We're feeling pretty good. The federal government is coming in and they're armed and it works quite effectively. It scares KKK members and others that they will actually be held accountable and there are armed troops protecting black rights. But this was a big turning point for politicians and the ecosystem in general because as this federal intervention takes place, fatigue begins to set in on politicians. At this point, this struggle has been going on for seven years. The Republican Party, which is the party of Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant, is starting to split because some are now thinking the federal government is overstepping. And then an economic downturn happens in 1873, so it makes people want to stop spending so much money on Reconstruction. And frankly, the country is tired of being so divisive, and they want to move forward. They want to move past this time. So now politicians' platforms, they're saying that they'll end Reconstruction. Democrats start winning back seats, which results in less money given for Reconstruction, and again emboldens the KKK to increase their violence and fear-mongering. So after Grant's two terms in the presidential election of 1876, both presidential candidates vowed to end Reconstruction. And whites terrorized blacks so much during this election that black voting went from in the hundreds of thousands to hundreds. And blacks lost office both nationally and locally across the board. Yeah, I, I think it's important to bring up some of this violence. And in fact, I was looking at sort of, this sounds really dark. I was looking at like a list of like massacres in the United States yeah. in our history. Because I, I think it's important to point out that like today is September 11th, right? And so clearly, you know, 19 years ago, we had an unbelievable tragedy in our country. Almost 3,000 people lost their lives, right? And we, we set aside a day to honor those people. We, we mourn. And we also don't set aside days where we don't think about all the massacres that have happened in our country. So like one that I found was, you probably already know this, but the California genocide actually, which is where 16,000 Native Americans were killed as white settlers were, were moving into the area of Native Americans, right? Mm -hmm. But we, we don't talk about that, right? We don't have a day set aside to honor those who lost. And that's 16,000. Now, now, loss of life is loss of life. It's always tragic. But that's 13,000 more people who died in the World Trade Center, right? So huge. But it does it does speak to the fact that we, in general, white folks, whitewash history, right? So there's, there's one I also looked up that's relevant to what we're talking about, which is the election. It's just called the election riot of 1874, which you probably already know about. Yeah, you're nodding your head like, this is this is common knowledge, Paul. Why don't you know? <laughs> no. Um, so eight people died, 70 injured, where the, you maybe you can talk about this, the White League Democrats drove African-American Republicans from the polls. So mm. so voter voter suppression has been something that's part of our history ever since black people got the, the right to vote. Yeah. But clearly back during this time in the late 1800s, you know, black people would expect white people to be there waiting for them at the polls. And they, you know, they would be met with violence and, and people would die. Um, and this, you know, this election riot wasn't the only one, I'm sure. Um, there's probably many more, but I, I don't even know the amount of people who died just right. trying to vote. 
when yeah. they had the right to vote. Like yeah. this isn't a, like this isn't like a resistance thing. Like oh, we don't have the right to vote. I'm going to vote anyway. It's a I have the right to vote, right? Yeah, right. So when I was doing research for this, and and I rewatched PBS four hour documentary on Reconstruction, which is I suggest everybody check out. It's really good. You are hitting on the point that hit me the hardest. As one of the historians on this documentary said, he's like, you know, the United States were so good and quick to judge other countries for being violent. Like that's one of the things that we always call countries on. When in fact, our history is remarkably violent. We are a violent country and we are still a violent country to this day. We don't ever recognize that. Lynchings themselves, there were over 4,000 black people who were lynched between like 1870 and 1960. I mean, 1960, we're talking here. You think about that? And that's counted. Right. right Those right. are actually, I mean, it could be twice that. Exactly. And you think about lynchings, like, think about it. And if you watch this documentary, they show images and they would pose next to these bodies hanging that had been mutilated because of this, the fear mongering tactics. And it just, it's sickening and it's something where it's like, wow, 4,000 of that happened and nobody was held accountable and lynching isn't a federal crime. It just made me pause where I'm like, wow, we have an incredibly violent past domestically and we don't ever talk about it and we don't ever recognize it. Yeah. And I think the other layer to that too is, is the white supremacy layer of people might be like, okay, yeah, sure. We're violent, but the violence was justified. Mm-hmm. Right. Where all those other countries, it's just savages who are just like slaughtering each other for no reason. Like there's no justification there. But like parallel that I was making all the time during the uprisings and the riots after George Floyd was lynched and they're con- continuing today was like, this is exactly the response that American revolutionaries had. Exactly. If you, if you strip it all down, American revolutionaries were like, I'm not happy with the way we're being treated. Yeah. So we're going to fight back with violence. And they took it another level. They started a war over it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just riots and violence and killing like British soldiers. They, they're like, we're going to go to war because we are being oppressed yeah. and we are being treated unfairly. And that's exactly what people are saying in these social uprisings today. But because there's this racial difference, white people have this tendency to be like, well, but but that the Revolutionary War was was justified. Like that was real oppression or we were starting a, a whole country or whatever it might be. But this is just all, you know, what we're seeing today is just about looting and nonsense, right? Mm-hmm. And you can see the white supremacy there that even even the violence that's there for both sides or whatever, both parties, one form of violence is better than or more justified than than the other. Yeah, and even last episode... We talked about what led to the Civil War. And you made a good point of like, it's almost feeling like that where people are having this call to arms and arming up kind of mentality these days, like they're getting ready for something. And I was thinking a lot about that. And as I was thinking a lot about that, I was having a conversation with someone who knows a couple guys who are pretty into guns. And they were saying that you can't find ammunition anywhere these days. It's sold out everywhere. That's scary. I mean, it's like after our conversation that we have, and then I just heard, you know, this guy saying this, and it's like, it's, I think that violence is, it's ingrained in our country so much so. What we're going to talk about next episode is around propaganda Mm -hmm. and how we justified it for white supremacy. It's just sad how we're so quick 
to judge and we cannot turn the lens inward and, and, and look at this stuff. I mean, the saddest part, I think, about all of this violence is that black people saw the United States and what it meant to be a voting citizen, literate, active, all of these things as an incredibly powerful way to live a life and something that I think they were able to see because they didn't have it in slavery and they saw the power of it and how important it is. And they wanted it so bad. They fought for it. They were excited for it. They wanted to vote. They were doing everything they could. When they started opening up schools, five-year-old black children and 95-year-old black people all flocked to schools. They wanted to read so bad. And the white people just didn't allow it. And the worst cases are all of these, these cases of violence where they would murder people who were successful. So you think about black families who could have started generational wealth are working extra hard, are extra brave. They're the ones who are targeted. I mean, it's 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 really sad, and it's 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 something that we're just white Americans for the most part are just unwilling to look at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's this whole the last hundreds hundreds of years. It's like this internal battle within white people of this like this this moral side versus like this fear. Like the moral side is saying clearly what you were doing to black people and Native Americans was wrong. And today, what you're doing to people of color is wrong. But then the other voice, it's sort of that, like, you know, that that the angel and the demon on your shoulder, right? The other one's saying, like, yeah, but if you give them freedom, then you lose everything, right? You lose your power, you lose money, you lose your job, and who knows what will happen, right? And, like, and also this, like, will they get revenge, right? Which is a real thing, right? A real thing. In the background, and, like, what I'm seeing in, in how you describe in Reconstruction, is sort of this like back and forth tug of war of the moral the moral voice and the like the fear of like all right let's let's free them and be like oh shit like this isn't good mm-hmm. right let's pull it back a little bit mm-hmm. right and then like okay wait that was that was too far let's let's give them back a little bit more freedom okay no 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 that's too much you talk about this roller coaster right mm-hmm. getting hope having it taken away getting hope having it taken away and and just being kind of like this whiplash yeah. And, and, then, the, and not having any voice in it, right? Like yeah. you were, you were totally, right. you're totally, what's the word? You're, you're, at the devices. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have no choice in the matter. Right? Exactly. And I think that's the hardest part. You feel helpless. You know, this roller coaster ride is, it's the decision makers of the time and it's white men and it's, mm-hmm. it's Southern Democrats, it's Northern Republicans and Republicans start to fraction and it's like a political game. And then you have freed blacks who are sitting there and they're like, can we have a say in this? Like, yeah, we would like some federal troops to help us go to the polls to be able to vote. But they don't get that say. Whatever is decided eventually. And it's like one day they get, you know, a messenger that's like, hey, we can do this today. And they're like, awesome. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then they come back like with Johnson being like, oh, give all that land back Mm -hmm. to the white slave owners. It's like it was not an environment where they had the opportunity to help themselves. We just we they wanted to and they could, but white people in power made it impossible. Yeah. And they, they I think they did have some opportunities, but it was immediately taken away. Like I think the school's and raising black children is a great example. Mm-hmm. It's like, all right, here you go. You're free. You can raise your kids however you want. You can start your own schools. You can teach them however you want. And then white people will come and be like, no, you're doing it wrong, right? No, no, no. I'll show you I'll show you how to do it right. Mm-hmm. So it's like they had that opportunity, but just immediately that, that white supremacy 
saviorism kicks in and and again it's it's all this like no 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 you're, you're teaching them wrong or or maybe to them is like this is a moral wrong that you have black people teaching other black people things like white people are more educated and we're more intelligent so we should be the ones teaching them i mean i think about i don't know if you've listened to it but i highly recommend um, nice white parents i just heard about this i mean that yeah. is a modern day example mm-hmm. of that Right. Mm -hmm. How well-intentioned white parents think they know what's best to run a school that has, you know, black people of color in it. And it's, it's that that superiority complex. I mean, it's 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 just it's uncanny how we 300 years later, whatever. The same script, right? The yeah. same patterns play out. Yeah. We split up this reconstruction slash post reconstruction to today into two episodes. In the next episode, we look at how this all manifests today and why our ecosystem is the exact same way. Mm-hmm. But to, to close out reconstruction, so this is how reconstruction ends. You know how much we love compromises around here, Paul. So the Compromise of 1877 finally ends Reconstruction. So this was the election that whites terrorized blacks and they were voted out of office and it went from hundreds of thousands to hundreds of voters. And the presidential election is so close that neither side concedes victory. So the presidency came down to a compromise between Democrats and Republicans who sat in a room. So the Democrats, again, who were Southern Democrats, said, all right, fine, you know what? You can have the presidency, Rutherford B. Hayes, if you pull all U.S. federal troops out of the South and just let the South deal with themselves. That's all they wanted. So the Republicans at this point were more than ready to accept it. And just like that, they got the presidency and we pulled out all federal troops and organizations out of the South and abandoned Reconstruction. We abandoned black people. In the South, they were now left to the devices of those white supremacists. And the worst part about Reconstruction is that the white supremacists, the KKK, they won. They made it so difficult, horrifyingly violent, expensive, and dragged it out for so long that the rest of the country simply didn't want to deal with it anymore. The Northerners, everyone had just decided to move on. So this transitions to the Jim Crow South. So the Jim Crow South is what lasts from this time, like 1880, to 1968. That was like my dad was in, you know, in like graduated 50, high school. 52 years I mean, ago. Yeah, it's just, it's wild. And the purpose of these laws was to maintain white supremacy and completely segregate whites from blacks. This is where you see the separate schools, hospitals, public transportation, restaurants, all of those things. And it still thrived in that world of extreme violence. When I say, Paul, I think last episode, I I told you that I consider the Reconstruction period the greatest utter failure in our history. You know, hopefully you can see why we didn't set up free blacks up for any kind of success or citizenship. And the saddest part of it all is that we just, as a country, gave up on it. And it was hard. We wanted to just get back to the country we had before. We wanted to feel united. It's, it's the thing that makes me maybe the most mad in the history of our country. We didn't have the necessary willpower or commitment to fight for freed black people, to keep federal troops in the South, to ensure their safety. I mean, we just 
abandoned it. And it's, I think, our greatest shame. And we are reaping the benefits, everyone, all of us today. And it's like you said last episode, chaos ensues when power is hoarded. And we're seeing chaos today because power is hoarded. If power was spread equally, which it can be, we would live in a different world today. Yeah, I mean, the abandoning of Reconstruction is like the biggest showing of white fragility ever. Ever. I mean, right? I mean, the way ever. you describe it is like, oh, this is hard. <laughs> yeah, right. I quit. Yes. Right? And that is such a, that's the mantra, right, of white fragility, if you will. Because A, we, we haven't built up resilience because we're, we're used to comfort and we're used to dominance. We're used to being in power, right? And things being easier, right? And we can walk away. We have the choice, right? And so, like you said, oh, yeah, we can abandon Reconstruction because it's hard. But then black people were just, like, left there, like, looking around, yeah. like, okay, well, we, but we have to deal with this still. You know, like, we can't walk away from this. Mm-hmm. We have to figure this out. And you've left us with the KKK, right? Yeah, like, right, yeah. Talk about, like, going from, like, roller coaster, going from being hopeful to, like, like literal hell. Yes. I just think it's, again, it's sort of a, a cautionary thing, just like with being cautious about white saviorism is like today in this work, and this is nothing new, we've heard this all the time, but being white and male, like we can walk away and we're, we don't have much resilience, right? It's just not because we have privilege. It's like we have highways and roads paved out for us in this world, wide highways, right? And we're driving like Ferraris and, and black folks are, are like walking through the jungle with like a pocket knife, mm-hmm. right? Like that, that is kind of what I think of, right? So like we are used to ease of access and, and navigating the world. Whereas for a black person, they, they've, it's been just a struggle all the time, right? Yeah. And don't ever dare point that out to a white person, by no. the way. No, no, no. That's unfair. Because I'd rather have a Lamborghini okay. than a Ferrari, yeah, right? In this life, and this Ferrari has been and horrible. We had to <laughs> fill up that tank of gas once or twice. <laughs> yeah, yeah we had to hard. get out of our car. That cost some money. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's a, again, just as when we talked about this and, you know, as like looking today, looking forward, we're in sort of a kind of a reconstruction era ish. So just something to be mindful of as, as white men to know that that white fragility is going to creep in and probably already has. And just that we don't want to repeat history, right? Like yeah. let's not abandon. Now, again, like I hesitate to say that cause that feeds in the white saviorism like that we need to be there for it to happen. And I think that's why I really yeah. struggle with it. Right. Yeah. Cause we can't, we kind of do need to be there but we can't be in this with a white savior approach yeah right right so what does that mean right what does that look like what in that action like? and that's exactly what we're trying to figure out yeah what you yeah. and i what you and i are doing this podcast for right it's the important question to ask because so i like pace around my office a lot when i'm well that's what that that rut is <laughs> you see that I see that okay that yeah circle imprinted <laughs> um and I was just like, I was like, I refuse to live in a in a society that would let this happen again. You know, last episode, we talked about how it almost feels like we need to learn about reconstruction so that we don't repeat it. Because there's like some, it feels like reconstruction again right now with how people are wanting to dismantle certain things. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, I just, I can't see this country do this again and make the same mistake. But I don't want to be a white savior and say like, it's up to me, but I still need to be a proponent for it. And mm-hmm. I still want to speak out because this is so important. And like mm-hmm. at the time, I wish there were more people during Reconstruction that were speaking out mm-hmm. and, and, and saying like, you know, no, we need to continue this fight. And it's hard. We walk away. Is that what, is that what we're all about? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I get fired up. And yeah. I'm just like... It, yeah. Well, I can. I I hope this doesn't happen to you, but I can see you like 
you know, pulling a Charles Sumner and getting, you know, having a fiery <laughs> speech and getting beat by a cane. Yeah, but, that's right. But, I mean, it does beg the question, like, how do we prevent it? And right. is that is that something as simple as, and not simple, but also difficult, like, we get into positions of power? Because at the end of the, I mean, these decisions that you talked about, Reconstruction, at the end of the day, it was decided by people at the very top, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm sure there are people like you back then be like, no, let's not give yeah. up. Let's keep this going. Like, we need to fix it. But they're, they're yelling into the void because they don't have a position of power yeah so again there's that conundrum of like white men because we're listened to more because we have that power that dominance just given to us right it's it's not real but it's given to us in the white imagination we should get into positions of power so we can dismantle white supremacy institutions but we also don't want to step on the toes take positions away from people of color who have the expertise and and know how and need to be in those positions right yeah and again back to that's the whole central kind of question but it's important to 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 talk about it and, and figure at, it out. And at the very least, we can be informed and say, hey, listen to these people that don't look right. like us, right? Majority right. white people and white men. Because I think the sad reality is is that a lot of white men will listen to other white men in a less defensive way right. than they will to people of color or women or what have you. So for us in my circles, we can individually be fearless. And I'm a point out history kind of guy, as you're not surprised about. We're like, I'll be with a group of friends. And if they say something that they just don't understand the history of it, I'll be like, hey, man, like, this exists because of X, Y, Z. And I think that th- that can have a huge ripple effect if a lot of people do that. Mm-hmm. Or if we're in leadership positions, knowing the ecosystem and being like, hey, we have to improve this because of this. Mm-hmm. You have to listen to these people because of this. Mm-hmm. Even if we're not leading it, advocating for others is big. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The next episode is our final one where we connected to today which i'm excited about and then we'll continue from so, there are we not going to talk about history anymore because yeah. you're going to just check out this <laughs> <laughs> i'm going to drag next episode on as long as i can yeah <laughs> so, all right 15 part installment yep exactly <laughs> all right you're going to see how jim crow laws have connected to 2020 all right all right good thank you for listening to the modern white man Please follow us on Twitter at The Modern White Man for updates on new episodes, and please feel free to shoot us a note with questions or thoughts for future episodes. As always, if you are enjoying this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and share, both individually and on social media. That's how we get the most traction. After all, the more white men that have these conversations, the better.